Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. 1 Peter chapter 5. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, the scriptures will be on the screen behind me as well. We're going to be finishing bringing in our 1 Peter series, uh, bringing it in for a landing today. It's our series, A Royal Priesthood, the Body of Christ in 1 Peter. And I'm excited because, you know, Peter has written this letter, the Apostle Peter has written this letter to this group of churches in Asia Minor, uh, what we know today as modern-day Turkey, and he's written this letter uh, to, to churches who were facing increasing persecution because they confessed their faith in the name of Jesus. It was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, as far as we know, uh, but they, have, they were believers in Jesus, and they were facing persecution for that fact. And, and this Jesus that they were placing their faith in and facing persecution for, Peter tells us in the first chapter, they had never seen Jesus. They had never actually met him in the flesh. This was around A.D. 62, 64-ish. So they had never met Jesus, but they still loved him. And so we start to see this generation of believers that is like you and me, never seen Jesus in the flesh, but their faith is in him and they love him. And so Peter's writing to this group. And this, this group of churches is not just facing persecution now, they're about to face even more persecution as the, as the Roman Empire, who was the dominant power of the day, begins to exert more and more and more of its influence upon the region. The persecution is only going to intensify. And we actually know from historical accounts that Peter, as he writes this letter to these churches is actually in Rome itself. So Peter has first-hand experience every day of the seat of persecution. And he knows what's coming as it makes its way to these churches. And he knows it's only going to intensify. And, he, and that's, the, that's sort of the environment we have as he writes this letter. And we notice that in Peter's letter... Remember, we, we, we were teaching ourselves that we need to remind our hearts that we're reading a letter. We're not just reading a, an outline or a textbook. It's a letter. And that Peter's letter follows what most New Testament letters sort of follow in their format. And that is that they have three main parts. The first part is this, is this part that says, wow, look what God has done for us. Look what God has done for us. Oh, look, look, at, look at how amazing God is in all that he has done. And that's, and that's where these New Testament letters start. And then it transitions to a second place that, that starts to say, in light of what God has done for us, this should have kind of an expression in our lives. This should, this should have an, an effect on our lives. And then the third, the third part, where most New Testament letters find the bulk of their content, is what does the nitty-gritty of that expression look like in our lives? In light of what God has done, in light of that it should have an expression, how is that worked out? In other words, what is life with Jesus as Lord supposed to look like? And we spent the last few weeks as Peter has described that to his readers. And Peter is now ending his letter. He's ending his letter. We're coming into the last verses today. And, and I, I, as I read it, I, I see Peter wanting to do two very specific things. Firstly, I see Peter wanting to offer a reminder of what he has said before. A reminder, sort of a summary of what he said before. And he also wants to offer one final, lasting, conclusive encouragement. A lasting, conclusive encouragement. It's a precious thing. And, and here's, here's kind of what I liken it to. You know, um, well, this is almost going to seem silly, but it's kind of the same feeling. 
each morning, either Jess, my wife, or I will drive our girls to school. Our, old, our two oldest kids, they go to a, a neighborhood school just, just a little bit away from us, about a 10-minute drive. And on that drive every morning, there's uh, awesome conversation in the car. Um, my, my girls, they just, they just are great talkers. They just talk. And I understand that I'm a great talker, too, that that's how they got it. They, I just, we just never stop. But in the car, they even impress me. So we have great conversation, and sometimes the conversation is um, intense, or it's about, it's about really uh, teachable, teach, teachable things, things that need to be taught, and sometimes it's about like, things like LOL dolls and Hatchimals and things that I don't even know what they are, but somehow I bought them. Um, but at, throughout the conversation, I'm, I'm listening and I'm doing my best to, to impart wisdom and, and sort of gauge where they are and, and sort of give where what I think honors the Lord in terms of what they're saying. And sometimes it's like, no, you can't say that word. And in this family, I don't care if your friends say that word, uh, all the way down to, well, when, you know, when your teacher says this, you know, you need to, you know, honor and obey. And, and, but whatever the conversation, there always comes that point where, it's time for them to get out of the car. I'm, I'm, I'm dropping them. And there's always this moment at the end where I want to I end what we've talked about in a certain way. And that certain way is usually, usually goes something like this. Remember, I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud to be your dad. And no matter what, I trust God with you. If you've taken anything from this car ride, <laughs> take that. I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud to be your dad. And I trust God with you. I don't usually tear up when I'm taking them to school. That's fine. <laughs> but here's what I mean. This is, we are not reading the end of an email. We're not reading the end of a text. We're not reading the end of a post. A letter was a precious thing. You see, Peter was writing down his heart for these churches under intense persecution, and that letter is coming to a close. And there is something final about that. There is something of that moment where he says, listen, listen, hang on, hang on, before you get out of the car, before you get out of the car, remember, remember, remember. Because he's not about to see them again. He's not about to text them again. They're not going to FaceTime. They're not going to keep in touch. There's something final and precious. And if some of you who I know are like me are snarky and sitting there going, well, he did write Second Peter. Uh, <laughs> we actually don't have a historical guarantee that it was to the same group of churches. And even then, great, two letters. <laughs> I see some of you have sent four texts since I've started preaching. <laughs> There's something precious about it. So Peter, Peter is taking this moment and he wants to remind and he wants to encourage. And I think... For us today, we need, to, we need to enter into what Peter is reminding and encouraging about with the preciousness that he intended for it to have. This is God's inspired word. So let's not take it like, hey, we're going to see you next week. There's something weighty about this. And we're going to go back through the scriptures themselves, and we're going to let the scriptures do the heavy lifting. I'm not going to re-preach everything that we've preached in the series, although, hold my beer. I'm just kidding. But it is a great idea to go back. Just so you know, after today, I think it would be a great idea for all of us to go back and read through 1 Peter one more time. It's five chapters, and let the summary of what Peter is writing to his readers sink in and build up in our hearts again. There's something, there's something to be said for teaching through it on Sundays. There's also something to be said of taking it in as the letter that it was. All right? But we're going to start where Peter begins his close. So turn with me to 1 Peter 5. We're going to read verses 10 and 11. 
We're going to dive into this, to this reminder and this encouragement that Peter has. You guys okay? All right? So 1 Peter 5, verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. I want to read that again. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so what are Peter's reminders? Well, I think there's key, three key phrases in these verses where he begins his close that are going to give us a clue to his reminders. Firstly, that phrase that he starts with, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Okay, that's awesome. That's awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Peter is reminding us here, I would argue, that through Jesus, God has accomplished a matchless salvation for us. Through Jesus, God has accomplished a matchless salvation for us. Peter has laid a foundation throughout his whole letter for the magnitude of what God has done. He's elaborated on God's salvation and what that brings for us. And even all of that is only able to paint just a glimpse of the endless complexity and beauty, the finality, the, the, the totality of how God has, has rescued us and saved us. And Peter has wanted to offer something of a striving glimpse of that for his readers. And like I said, we're not going to re-preach the whole thing, but I do want to touch on a few things that Peter has made sure to make clear to his readers. And, and, and so this final reminder of, of through Jesus, God has given us a matchless salvation, I think breaks down into a couple of things that we must, must, must remember as we close this letter. Firstly is, it's God who conceives of us even knowing him, and it was God who made the way. It's God who thought up the idea of us knowing him, and it's God who makes the way. Peter opens his letter with these, with these verses. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All these churches in these regions. To God's elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. Remember, yay, predestination. Through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to what? Be obedient to Jesus Christ, yay, free will, and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Honestly, I, it's, not, it's not to make light of that conversation, but it is, there's a mystery there to those things. Chosen by God's foreknowledge to be obedient. And we're not going to preach through that now, but if you have questions, I would love, love, love to discuss it with you. Shoot me an email, steve at churchinthecity.us. <laughs> God is the initiator of the God-man relationship. God is the initiator. And it's God's idea that we should even know him. It's not ours. So let's not be flippant about it. I mean, to be honest, we, we can be flippant with relationships sometimes. We, and, and I'm not talking romantic relationships, although we can be flippant with those too. But we sort of enter and exit relationships sort of as, as we please. You know, I'm sort of done here and I've gotten what I need and now I'm out. Peace. And sometimes we do that so flippantly, and we, we, we can, if we're not careful, we can apply that to our relationship with God. But we didn't think up knowing God. We didn't think it up. And God, as we will see, 
is not flippant about it. He has stated his desire for us. Chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge means before you and I were there to have knowledge of. God's not flipping about it. And he provided us a way to know him. God conceives of us knowing him and he makes the way. Secondly, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of our salvation. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the way that God has made. Remember, we're looking at through Jesus, God has accomplished a matchless salvation for us. Jesus is the cornerstone of salvation. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Peter simply quotes the Old, uh, the Old Testament. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him, speaking of Jesus, will never be put to shame. God not only conceives of us knowing him, but makes the way, and the way of knowing him is his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself came to say, I've came, I came to reveal the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And all, therefore, because of how God has created us, and because it was God who conceives of us knowing him, and because it's God who makes the way, whether we can articulate it or not, all of human yearning is for the person of Jesus Christ. All of human yearning is for him. Back in chapter 1, Peter says, Concerning this salvation... The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently and with the greatest care. These are the Old Testament prophets that knew God. And they were searching for the person of Jesus Christ. But even broader than that, in Ecclesiastes 3, the Bible tells us that he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time and he has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. The summation of the mystery of knowing God and him revealing himself, and all of our yearning, the yearning of history, is centered around one cornerstone, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. That could be an entire series, but we're not going to unpack it much more from there. Through Jesus, God has accomplished a matchless salvation for us. God conceives of us knowing him and makes the way, and Jesus Christ is the corner, cornerstone of that salvation. And because of that, Peter reminds us, Believers in Jesus have all of God's salvation. The believer in Jesus has the totality to every edge, every margin, every place colored in, all of God's salvation. That is, God doesn't do salvation halfway. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, I know I'm reading a lot of scriptures, but, but again, I don't want you to hear this from me and say, oh, oh, James made a good case, or a bad case, depending on what you, you know. I'm sure, you know, let me know. But I want, I want us to look back at what Peter's written. Peter's summarizing what he wrote. And in 1 Peter cha- uh, chapter 1, verse 4, this inheritance, our salvation, all of God's salvation, is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Because of Jesus, those who believe in him have a forever changed position before God. They have a position that is forever, unalterably changed before God. And it's a position that is both unearned and completely justified. Unearned, but completely justified. It's unearned, why? Because we in our sin could not accomplish a relationship with God that we firstly didn't conceive of, certainly couldn't make the way towards, and were the reason for the brokenness in in the first place. It's unearned. We can't even entertain earning 
the salvation that we've received. In fact, we couldn't even define ourselves as lost or needing God. When's the last time you talked to somebody on the bus? How's your day going? Oh, it's good. You know, I'm, I'm lost and separated from God. And, but we can't. And I'm not making light of it, but we can't. We can't. Have you ever, I've, sometimes I've found my kids and they didn't know they were lost. And so I've come to tell them they're lost and that I can save them. It's unearned. It's also justified because the work that Jesus completed on the cross is absolutely finished and complete. And that work purchased our salvation, purchased the, ne- the necessary holiness and justification, the atonement that is the, that is the price, full, paid, done, no rebates, don't keep the receipt, it is purchased, done. And Jesus has accomplished it. Peter references this in verse 24 of chapter 2. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So because our position is before God is forever changed, he also shields us forever. How? By his mighty power. And for how long? Forever. <laughs> Which means until we're with him in these days, and then when we're with him in those days, with God in the absence of time, forever. Peter says, you are shielded by God's mighty power. What else is Peter reminding us of? You guys okay? Still friends? That God recreates forever the believer in Jesus. You see, God's salvation is total, so he recreates forever the believer in Jesus. Peter writes in verse 23 of chapter 1, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. We've mentioned this before in this series. We were not saved with tawdry, rag, throwaway things. That's not what you buy something imperishable with. Rather, we were saved with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is fully God, and therefore this salvation is rooted in an imperishable seed, an everlasting seed. And with that imperishable seed comes certain God-conceived things for us, things God-conceived of that we could not conceive of, such as a new birth into a living hope. Chapter 1, verse 3, praise be to the, and these aren't up behind me, but just listen as I read these, because I really want scripture to be doing the the point proving, if you will. Praise be to, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's imperishable. We've received that. Because we've been saved by the imperishable work of Jesus, we become living stones built around in accordance with and from the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, as you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, we could preach forever and ever and ever on the fullness of how God recreates forever, unchangeably, the person who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, God has accomplished a matchless salvation for us. I want to say that Peter brings this 
thought of, of God's salvation that he's accomplished through us through Jesus into a close with this, with this reminder that in Jesus, in Jesus, because God has conceived of our salvation, he's made the way. Jesus is the cornerstone of that. His salvation touches every corner of the page. He recreates us forever. That I want to say that in Jesus, we are truly, unimaginably, unapologetically the people of God. We are the people of God. Don't say sorry. Not arrogance. Not arrogance. But we're the people of God. Verse 9, chapter 2. But you are a chosen people. You're a chosen people. You ever, you ever think about that? Jamie, God chose you. Emily, God chose you. Luis, God chose you. You're chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Let it build God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Listen to this. Probably one of my favorite phrases in all of scripture. Once you were not a people. Once you just, you just weren't. You weren't a people. But you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once we were not a people, but God conceives of us knowing him and makes the way. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of salvation. Believers in Jesus have all of God's salvation. God recreates forever the believer in Jesus. So are we a chosen people? Yes. Are we a royal priesthood? Absolutely. A holy nation? Yes. God's special possession? Yes. Why? Because as Peter reminds us, through Jesus, God has accomplished a matchless salvation for us. That I feel... My shortcomings at rise, trying to even describe it. And Peter reminds us all of, that, of all of that with that phrase, and the God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ. Reminding is precious at the end of this letter. Reminding is precious. Peter's second reminder is the next phrase in the verse, in verse 10. After you have suffered a little while. Oh, we were doing so well. Oh, Peter, I was tracking with you, man. After you have suffered a little while. You know, it's one thing to dwell on God's matchless salvation. And we need to and we should and we do. It's quite another thing, quite a deeper thing to dwell on it in the midst of unimaginable persecution. And that's what these churches were enduring. And Peter reminds us with this phrase, after you have suffered here a little while, that not only has God through Jesus accomplished a matchless salvation for us, but he reminds us that we are exiles here and this world is not our home. We are exiles here and this world will never be our home. Our hearts are in the jurisdiction of heaven now. And as our lives begin to reflect that more and more and more, there is going to be trial. There is going to be persecution because, uh, you know, if, hopefully this isn't a shock, but the world is fallen. It's broken. It res- it, it, the, what we see in the world is the full expression, the creative expression, the, the real articulate expression of all of the brokenness as a result of sin. So as we cry out to God, as Jesus instructed us to, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're going to come against trials, persecution, and suffering. And let's not allow our hearts to be simply and only overwhelmed by the existence of that. But rather reminded that we're exiles, partnering with God, 
for his purposes. And Peter, he's made that case so many times in his book. I mean, more than one time in this letter, Peter reminds his readers, be alert, be of sober mind, be alert, be of sober mind. You don't have to do that to someone who is walking through a really safe, warm, cozy place. Later today, when I'm loading my four kids into the car, I'm going to say, essentially, be alert, have a sober mind. This is Division Street. (laughs) No one's going to have a sober mind for you. The Greek words there for for alert and and sobriety, they they actually mean, in their essence, unasleep. Unasleep and undrunk. Walk straight, talk straight, look straight, head on. Be alert, be of sober mind. In, in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter writes, and we, and we read this uh, third or fourth week of the series. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, what causes us to be exiles is not only our position, that forever changed position before God. You see, we're no longer separated from him, but instead we are in his matchless salvation. But what causes us to be exiles is also our disposition, the way we go about living out that salvation. Abstaining from sinful desires, as Peter wrote. Rejoicing in the midst of trials, as he referenced in in chapter 1, verse 6. Though though for now you must suffer uh, unimaginable trials. And it's not that the trials are, are little or light or small potatoes. It's just that they're not as eternal as the salvation that God has given us. By submitting humbly to, not agreeing with, but submitting humbly to human authority. Remember? Make submission great again. We're different. So let's be different. Why are we exiles in these practices? Okay, this, hopefully this is not rocket science. Because firstly, the world is not abstaining from its sinful desires. The world is not. Good, none of you are shocked. <laughs> the world doesn't rejoice in the midst of trials. We talked about this earlier in the series, that the root of injustice here, this side of heaven, is getting out of the way of the trial so it hits somebody else. And i got to structure my life and my power and what I can structure around me to, to duck the trial so it hits somebody else who's not like me. And by the way, if I want power and standing over you, i got to make it look like you're not doing that. It's silly. And it will never be solved in the worldly manner. The world doesn't rejoice in the midst of trials. And the world is not humble in dealing with one another. Right? Nobody sounds like the elected official that they're lambasting more than the one who's lambasting the elected official, right? We got to be different. We got to be different. We're exiles because life in Christ naturally runs contrary to life outside of him. And the further we read into 1 Peter, the more we, as we get into this part of his letter where he says, this is what it should look like, the nitty gritty of Jesus being Lord in our lives, the more that that happens in our hearts, the more exiled we become the more different we are. So Peter reminds us in chapter four, dear friends, don't be surprised. Don't 
be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And I just want to say quickly, that does not mean seek suffering. That does not mean seek trials. It's not points for seeking trials. God never commands us to seek trials. He commands us to seek first his kingdom and promises trials will come. Yes? But we should expect them. And that's the posture of an exile. Suffering not for suffering's sake. Enduring not for endurance's sake, but with Jesus as our example. For the fruit of partnering with God for his purposes, as Jesus did. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God. We just read. As Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. More exiles. More foreigners. And as exiles... Only a true foreigner, a true exile, can say to this world, I invite you to change your citizenship. I invite you to change your citizenship. Peter reminds us that through Jesus, God has accomplished a matchless salvation for us. And therefore, we are exiles here, and this world will never be our home. And as we come to the end of Peter's letter, he he isn't just reminding of those two things. He doesn't just leave it there. He wants to offer a final, conclusive encouragement. And that's where I want to end, end with us today. It's that moment of, maybe you've said this to someone, if, if I've said anything to you in this conversation, I'm trying to say this. You ever, you ever had that moment with someone? If you take anything away from what I'm saying, take this. This is where Peter is in this letter. I want to read the, the chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, where, we, where we've been. Let's read this together again. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Listen to that. Will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's Peter's final encouragement. But to fully unpack it, I think we have to look at what he writes next. In verse 12. With the help of Silas whom I regard as a faithful brother. Isn't it awesome to see teamwork in the New Testament? I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying. Here we go. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. This is the true grace of God. What I've written to you, what I've testified, is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Peter characterizes all of what he's written in that phrase. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Okay. What is his encouragement here? Why is he using God's grace as the glue for everything that he's written? I'm intrigued, just like you. If you have, if you have an answer, let me know. But we see him doing that. We see him using God's grace. Well, God's, because everything that Peter has described, that is God making a way for us to know him, even thinking up the idea, God making a way of salvation through Jesus Christ, God bestowing on us the privilege of being his people with a right of access to him, and God giving us Jesus as our example of suffering for the fruit that is before him. All of this is an expression of God's character, and grace is God's character in action towards us. Grace is God's character in action towards us. It's the extension of God of himself, to us, and therefore it's not a diminishment of any part of the character of God. We've said before, grace is not in conflict with the holiness of God's character. 
It's not in conflict with the righteousness or the justice or the wrath of God's character. Grace is the extension of the fullness of who God is to us, for us, with us. Grace is God's character in action. So Peter invokes God's grace to focus on what he's said because it is through grace, through God's grace, that he has accomplished all that Peter has referenced. So Peter's final encouragement, I want to argue, is this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. He's encouraging these persecuted believers in Jesus to stand fast now in what has never changed, God's grace. Stand fast now in what has never changed, God's grace. God in his grace has already accomplished matchless salvation for us. God in his grace has an inheritance for us that will never perish, spoil, or fade. God in his grace extended to us the person of Jesus Christ to make us his royal, chosen, precious, special possession. God in his grace commands us to partner with him in taking that grace to others. And so as exiles in this world, why would we rely on anything else to sustain us but that which has never changed, God's grace? And by the way, stand fast doesn't mean grit our teeth, doesn't mean our own strength. In fact, it's stand fast in God's grace, which compels us to, with all of our might, release to him, release to him, release our sense of of justice or need to judge, release release our, our, our need to be right to the one who will make all things right. Release our perception of victory to the one who has all power and all victory. This is the example that Jesus set for us that Peter references. And he says he entrusted himself to the just judge. Stand fast means release, release, and give over to the grace of God. That's Peter's final encouragement. It's the picture that he's painted for these persecuted believers. God has initiated with you. God's grace will keep you now and in the final day of judgment, and and God's grace will sustain you now. It will sustain you now. I want to invite Aiden and the team, you guys, to to come up. We're going to have a time of, of worship in just a minute. I'm bringing this into land. So Peter's two reminders. Through Jesus, God has accomplished a matchless salvation for us. And we're exiles here, and we'll never be at home. In this world. And his final encouragement. Stand fast now then. In what has never changed. God's grace. I understand. I'm not ignorant of the fact that it's really, it's really hard to put a, spe- a specific action to stand fast in God's grace. Trust me. I've been praying about it all week. What do I have people do? But it does involve something of a giving over of that which we have been grasping to. A giving over of that which we have been grasping to. And I do have a sense that the Lord is, even right now, bringing things to mind in hearts across the room that we have clutched, that we have said, this is too great. This, I, I actually have to hold on to this. And I can't release it over to God's grace, which is himself in action to me. And that's been my prayer, that God would bring those things now. 
And God is, God is bringing those things up in our minds and hearts. And, and I believe that God is inviting us in this moment to rest afresh, as Peter's encouragement to these believers was, to rest afresh on that which in, first initiated with them, that keeps them always, that will keep them in the last days, to release afresh to the grace of God. And so as the team begins to play, we're going to worship together, declaring the goodness and the might of God. And my prayer is that we'll have from the Lord sort of a reintroduction to his grace, a reintroduction to his goodness. And my encouragement to us is that whatever God is calling us to rest in, whatever God is calling you to rest in, to just do the act of releasing it. Maybe it starts with our lips. Maybe it's not something we can bring our hearts right now to in this moment. But then I would say, I would encourage you, let it start with your lips. Let it start with your lips. That's the action of standing fast in God's grace. So just as the team plays, if that describes you, if there's, if there's something where you're, if there's something in your heart or in your life where you're saying, Lord, I have to release this. I've battled, but I have to release it. I want to invite you to stand. I just want to invite you to stand and we're going to worship, declaring God's might and power and his goodness. And Lord, even just right now across this room, I pray in the name of Jesus that the realization of your grace would be fresh, Lord, whether we've walked with you for decades or minutes, Lord Jesus. We want to stand fast in what has never ever changed and what will never ever falter and that is your grace that is your grace heavenly father thank you lord holy spirit would you just move across hearts i pray for a fresh laying down i pray for rest and peace in the name of jesus Lord, that striving would cease, that anxiety would go, that worry would be let down in the name of Jesus. Lord, that what we are facing, the big and the small or the old and the new, even even anxiety about things that we are worried about facing would go in the name of Jesus. That we would see things in light of the eternal, protected, shielded, imperishable salvation that we have in, in Jesus' name. Jesus name let's worship together and as we worship lay down what we hold and in doing that we stand fast in the grace of God thanks again for listening to the Church in the City podcast subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us